Golden Spiral Media presents Dark Matter, a fan podcast dedicated to Extant on CBS. Each week, Mike and Dave explore the mysteries, characters, and drama that unfold on Extant, and they want to hear from you too. Send in your thoughts by calling 304-837-2278 or visiting goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback. Now, here are your hosts, Mike and Dave. Hello, we're glad you could join us for this installment of Dark Matter, an extant podcast. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is show number 11, where we'll be talking about season one, episode 13, the season finale of the CBS summer event series, Extant. And this episode is entitled Ascension, and it aired on September 17th, 2014. And Ascension was written by series creator, no surprise there, Mickey Fisher, and directed by Miguel Sapochnik, who I looked up and found out he directed a pretty cool movie called Repo Men with Jude Law and Forrest Whitaker. Yeah. Uh, I might have to check that one out. It looked pretty cool. <laughs> but we're here to talk about the season finale. And Dave, I think there's a lot of people out there, and we've been through this before with other shows, who felt this last episode left them a little bit dangling. But you and I loved it for that exact same reason, that it left some things open. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole ambiguity of the season finale, to me, gives us enough closure in the major story arcs. And I don't know. I mean, it certainly leaves enough plot points open to conjecture. And to be honest, I prefer it that way. Yeah, it should be noted that Dave and I enjoyed the ending of Battlestar Galactica and Lost, (laughs) which I know we were in the minority, especially on that last one. Yeah, and I mean, certainly there were some holes, and and we'll talk about them tonight. Were there weaknesses? Of course. And, and, you know, we've talked at length about things like lack of chemistry between John and Molly and, and... you know, and certainly there were some things in the in the finale, but I liked it a lot. I'm very satisfied with the ending. Yeah, I especially liked the way they wrapped up. I think Ethan and his storyline has been the strongest throughout. So we'll talk about uh, the best parts that we really enjoyed about the ending and, and a couple of the loose ends that didn't get tied up. Yeah, but you got a little some cool show news, right? Yes. I want to share with the listeners that the offspring is following us on Twitter. <laughs> Shannon Brown, the actor who plays the offspring. That was kind of cool to get a little follow from him. He came out of nowhere, <laughs> but uh, some really cool pictures up there on our Twitter account of he and Ethan together. And Twitter was a lively scene for Extant. I have to say, I really enjoyed it and I'm going to miss the banter back and forth. I mean, some of the over the top reactions to the times when Molly was in danger. Molly, you in danger, girl. That, that's just something I will miss. But <laughs> there was a couple things that were pointed out to us on Twitter, Dave. There was an actress named Larissa Alenik in this episode. She played one of the ISEA folks who was talking about the cool new suit that Molly was going to get to wear. And Larissa Alenik is the actress from a Nickelodeon show called The Secret World of Alex Mack. And this was pointed out to us by both Mike Gorham and Corey Finneran. 
And you had seen her on some other show, right? Uh, well, I saw her in a movie, 10 oh, Things movie. I Hate About You, which was uh, an update of Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. Uh, of course, she was about 15 years younger then. And to be <laughs> quite honest, even when you showed me her picture today, I, I didn't recognize her. But then, you know, did the Google image and, oh, yeah, her. <laughs> Yeah, that's apparently a sci-fi show that's very nostalgic for some folks who grew up in the 90s. Uh, that's a little bit after our divinized childhood. So, But uh, another thing from Twitter, I'm just going with Twitter news this week. Uh, I forgot to mention something in our listener feedback or perhaps here at the show news segment, an interaction that happened on Twitter with Alan, who mentioned something that we didn't notice about an episode two, two weeks ago, where how did... John trick Yasumoto into thinking he had stolen the vial, the final vial of the asteroid goo. And it turned out, I should have noticed, he said it was the honey from John's tea. And they did zoom in on the honey very clearly so that they used the honey as the substitute. Now, whether or not John had the actual vial or the fake vial, we'll never know. <laughs> but I just wanted to acknowledge Alan. He also hashed through with me the timeline for this show because Yasumoto mentioned it was 25 years to find the asteroid and another 29 before landing on the moon. And if you use 1969 as your mark and 140 years total, that puts the show around 2055 and the mine accident itself that Yasumoto was involved in at around 1915. And I feel like that fits nicely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the other interesting thing had to do with the ratings. And to say we were concerned that the ratings for last week fell off by about a million would probably be not true because we knew we were going to get the finale and you know we're under no illusions that that there certainly might not be a season two anyway but the rebound to 5.44 million viewers pretty much puts us back to normal and we did have a 1.1 share in the 18 to 49 demo which really is the highest we've seen since episode four so you know finished uh, to say strong, uh, <laughs> you know, finished where it'd been. And and to be quite honest, since we've been podcasting uh, a little over two years, you rarely see a show that is as steady as Extant was. Yeah, it didn't fall off altogether. It found its niche audience and it stayed there. Yeah. So, yeah, we're hoping for a season two. Uh, we are not necessarily optimistic in that regard, but you never know what can happen. And certainly if this are, is the ending that we're left with, I would be perfectly happy. Yeah, me too. So let's go ahead and get started on our Dark Matter episode discussion. Well, why don't we jump into space? Because certainly one of the primary story arcs had to do with Molly going into space to try to save the Seraphim Station and Sean and... You know, I, I guess they mentioned saving Katie, but at that point, we, we really don't know exactly, uh, is this real Katie? Is this, <laughs> yeah. uh, right, alien Katie? They just don't know that yet, down on the ground. Right. And, and you know, Molly was really reluctant to go into space, and I guess you understand it because she's been torn the whole time uh, about leaving her family. And, and again, going into these 13-month missions, of course, this wasn't going to be a 13-month mission, but, you know, her, her marriage is in a bad place anyway yes so i don't think either of them really wanted her to go but i guess at the end of the day john encourages her because he has to i mean there's no way she can't go and she is the one that has the most 
experience with the offspring. And I think that served her well as she sort of learned to resist the effects of the illusions that it creates. Right. Now, she's still obsessed that the offspring is her child, and I'm still not so sure. Again, I don't know that we know for sure that the offspring is a human-alien hybrid. Well, the only indication we get, I think, from both the offspring and the fake Katie, who we find out is an actual second hybrid or a second offspring, if you will, is the fact that they do seem to be confined to their corporeal bodies because they can be trapped in certain areas of the Seraphim and the ISEA building. Until they start making the glass shake. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, But we do find out you know, that, that the offspring wants to bring down the Seraphim. That's right. And along with that, get to Earth. And <laughs> I, I like the plans we have, right? Plan A, redirect the Seraphim away from Earth's orbit. But plans B and C... <laughs> well, they're a little bit iffy. Plan B, use Seraphim's thruster to redirect manually. And I guess that's just sort of send it back into its regular orbit or perhaps just send it away from Earth. <laughs> but I love Plan C the best because someone went through the trouble of putting big white block letters on a suitcase <laughs> for Molly to carry her explosives in. That was classic. <laughs> you know if there's going to be a Plan C labeled so clearly that they're going to use it. Blow the damn thing up. Blow the damn thing up. Scuttle the ship. <laughs> yep. And first of all, I love the audio quality and the tone of Ben. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I just, I just the love The inflections. It. Yes. Uh, but, he, you know, his speech in this episode, I mean, you and I were talking about this at work today, that he was so focused on the low probability of the mission succeeding (laughs) (laughs) that, you know, it's almost as if, wouldn't they have programmed into him that, you know, the astronauts don't want to hear that. You don't have to reiterate it over and over again. And and I loved Molly who just told him, Ben, shut up. You're skating on thin ice, buddy. Right. (laughs) But it's foreshadowing, isn't it? Yeah. Later on, Ben's misgivings here at the very beginning of the episode show that he's got a decision-making algorithm, I guess you could say, that's going to lead him to certain decisions that are even more uh, Skynet-like than we were worried about Ethan becoming. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I did like the scene in Mission Control. I mean, Ryan Jackson, maybe a bit over the top with his <laughs> pre-launch speech, but but I still liked it. You know, and the, if you're the praying type, say a prayer for Dr. Woods. If you're superstitious, cross your fingers, throw a pinch of salt. And if you don't believe in anything, believe in her. And and okay. I did like the last part. I think that's cool. Well, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, corny, tacky. I don't know. I guess what I really liked about Jackson was that, number one, his character came out of nowhere. Right. And he really seems to have a grasp on how to handle perhaps the most perilous mission in, in human history. Well, especially think of how close they got to executing Plan B. Yeah. Ryan Jackson evacuated the building, and rightfully so. Good decision, Ryan. But if he had just waited maybe 20 minutes more, the uh, backup power generator would have... No, I guess it was plan A, wasn't it? Plan A. Yeah. Getting those batteries back up in the antenna and communications were reestablished. It just was too late for them to do anything about it. Right. Because plan B, she's going to do it 
manually, which uh, obviously, right. as we see, <laughs> was a problem in and of itself. They didn't even get to plan B at all. <laughs> right. Okay, so we find out that Molly's got to reestablish communications with ISEA so that she and Sean can come back to Earth in, in the escape pod. And I guess the idea is once they reestablish communications with Mission Control, then Mission Control can take over, right? Yeah, they can get the navigation going. Uh, unlike what they could do from the remote terminal we talked about last week, they, from ISEA, you can actually navigate the thing. Right. Now, look, we read a lot of criticism on the internet today. Yeah, especially from TV.com. Right. <clears throat> and, and I really felt that there was a lot of suspense. She hears Sean, you know, banging as he's trapped in, in one of those... Uh, well, it's in the Aruna itself, I think. Right. And we know right away that the problem is now going to be whether or not she believes that really is Sean. Now, granted, she's got the Danny Five, I guess, built into her helmet visor, so she she can certainly see right away. But right away, there was some suspense, and and they make contact, and then the next thing you know, we we cut to the scene, and she's cleaning him up, so to speak. Well, the big discovery that was another thing we didn't actually notice from last week even though we saw Katie's dead body, was the fact that there was a hole in her stomach. Yeah. And this, this kind of changed the dynamic because before that we thought, okay, this entity, the spores or whatever we're calling them this week, is just imitating Katie. But no, this is an actual second offspring. But it's had two years, almost two years, to become fully grown. So unlike Molly's baby, this thing is already grown up and has figured out all kinds of things, including how to imitate Katie to a T, which is why it was so skillful at creating chemistry with Sean. And I'm, I'm actually going to kind of miss the fact that there's no opportunity to develop that. But I like now that we saw the hole in the stomach, we know that it burst its way out, unlike the laser precision with which Molly's child was <laughs> removed. And so it's kind of running loose and has been, been on the Aruna by itself for a long time. Right. A little alien-esque there. Yeah. But we haven't actually seen that entity, right? I mean, other than no, and as Katie. it's it's hard to distinguish because, of course, the spores, which uh, is something I guess that comes from the fungus on the outside. These this is another latecomer to the series. The the idea that they're spores instead of energy. We've been calling them energy this whole time, but they can create illusions. But they, I guess, they're the ones that can only echo back what people are saying do you yeah think? yeah i mean for a while there we were wondering whether or not there were two separate aliens right 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 so the fact that katie is able to do some of the more sophisticated things that the offspring can do is very telling although i almost feel like katie should be even a little bit more powerful because of that because of her similarity to the offspring who who has all these powers including shattering glass like you said and yet couldn't escape from the shed later on. Right. Now, one thing I don't think you could argue with about this show uh, is the fact that Molly had a great wardrobe. Oh, that suit was great. Right. Well, I, I was talking about in everyday life, and then oh, I was okay. going to bring up the suit. Oh, was that awesome or what? Yeah, I think Mickey Fisher was saying his dream, uh, this was on Twitter, of course, was to see someone cosplaying that at Comic-Con. <laughs> well... Someone would have a big tailoring job ahead of them. No, I was going to say, but you know what? You know somebody will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, obviously the spores get on her. We see them on her hand. And I didn't notice it, but you had pointed out about the glove. 
Yeah. The first time she runs into Katie, it's funny because Katie tries to pretend like she actually is Katie and Molly has no illusions about that. But as soon as fake Katie realizes the gig is up, she won't let Molly leave the shed. So they struggle. And apparently in that struggle, one of Molly's gloves came off and that's how she got infected, I guess you could say, or at least exposed. So the suit becomes superfluous. Right. Now, uh, Sean tells her that he'll meet her at the hoses. And, you know, later we find out that the hoses have been cut. Now, I, I'm assuming these are the hoses that were, you know, they were going to divert the fuel to yeah. the thrusters if they had to go to plan B. Well, isn't that funny, though? Because Molly was on her way to go with plan A. So why was Sean already skipping over to plan B? <laughs> and who cut the hoses? Well, he did, right? Well, why would he do it? And it well, he was under the influence. Okay, so here's the timeline that I envision. And okay. you're right, they don't show this on screen. But he goes to the shed, sees fake Molly, doesn't get fooled because, of course, he's got Molly in his earpiece. So thankfully, he he backed off. So as he says he'll meet her at the hoses, he goes away, right? Okay. But he's got no protective suit whatsoever. And we've talked about how the spores can go willy-nilly where they want, unlike the offspring can. And that's why Katie can't get out, or the, or the fake Molly, I guess you could say, couldn't get out. But the spores can go anywhere they want, so they immediately started influencing him. By the time he got to the hoses, he had already gotten rid of Plan B under their influence, and that's why when he attacks her later, he's been under their influence the whole time. Ever since he drops his earpiece, because Molly finds it on the ground, Okay. he was done being Sean. Okay. Or being rational, anyway. All right. All right. Well, that makes sense. And yeah. uh, now eventually she's got to lock the spores in this passageway while she repairs the power module to the antenna. But uh, once it's repaired, that's it, Ben. Phone home. Yeah. And it would have worked, like I said earlier, except Ryan has already evacuated. And in fact, the reason that was is because Ryan noticed on the screens that all of the employees at ISEA are standing there staring at the ground and he kind of foolishly says oh the feed must be frozen right yeah. <laughs> like no they're just kind of standing there like zombies and incident management protocol imp goes into effect and they lock the offspring in the stairwell now doesn't it seem strange that the alarms wailing almost seem to hurt the offspring yeah absolutely that was interesting but yeah. again this is where we get sort of proof katie's been locked in the shed and the offspring has been locked in the stairwell. And so they are kind of locked in, unlike the spores. Yeah. But can I go back for just a second? Sure. Was it too much Ben phone home? <laughs> well, since that wasn't the only nod to an existing sci-fi <laughs> property. And that was a Spielberg movie as well, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. I didn't think of it from that perspective, but yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll leave that one alone. I I, <laughs> I liked it. I, you know me. I love allusions to other things. All right. Well, you know, Molly's insistent that she's not going to leave Sean, even though Ben goes through his whole uh, statistical analysis and <laughs> yeah. thinks it's a mistake and, and, you know, no, no, he's an acceptable loss. Right. And He's starting to talk that way already. Then again, more foreshadowing, right? Right. He won't. He will not initiate the launch sequence because the two of them are infected. Well, he doesn't want to even want her to put Sean in that containment cell, whatever it is. Right. And I think at that point, maybe Ben would have been willing to let just her go. Yeah. But but certainly doesn't want Sean involved. Yeah. Yeah. And and like you've already mentioned, 
the idea of Skynet. And of course, we've mentioned it several times throughout the course of these podcasts, but it really does start to kind of creep into the episode. And then, of course, the, you know, the whole idea about how, and, and I would certainly think most of our listeners uh, have seen 2001 A Space Odyssey and perhaps the uh, most famous artificial intelligence in film history. Yes, and even delivering the line, I'm afraid I can't do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. It's more like Hal anyway, what Ben's doing, because he's trying to protect humanity and in protecting them has taken over. Whereas Skynet just kind of says, I'm superior and I'm going to kill you all. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, much more like Hal. Yeah. Well, even Hal, you know, it, it's that Dave couldn't complete the mission or he didn't think. Right. So. Now, we can't accept the risk. What's that all about? Well, yeah, it was it was strange because Ben had been talking about the probabilities, but then he says to her while she's trying to execute plan C, we can't accept the risk. Who's we, Ben? Yeah. <laughs> are you speaking on behalf of the ISEA now? I mean, what? Or are you speaking on behalf of artificial intelligences <laughs> everywhere? <laughs> the singularity. <laughs> right. Now, um, obviously, one of the major storylines going through this episode has to do with Ethan. And, and we can't forget that Ethan's got that bomb that Odin placed in his chest cavity. And, you know, we, we talked all along about whether or not these two storylines were going to converge. And, of course, they do tonight. So we'll we'll just kind of finish this off a little bit here. That, that Ethan, you know, comes into the picture. Well, maybe we should... Uh, no, no, let's do it. Okay. We finish up with Ethan. We'll go back okay. and talk about Ethan's uh, lead into helping everybody and, and sort of combine it all together. But at this point in Molly's story, Ethan comes in to help her with her problem with Ben because he's, of course, re reestablished connection with the Seraphim through all the things we'll talk about, the decision-making that John and Ryan went through. But she tells him that she's having trouble launching which, Dave, to me is a little bit strange because I was doing my rewatch today and Ben had put on the access denied for the manual override. Right. As soon as Ethan calls and says, Mom, we see a little light that says access allowed. Right. Now, I guess I thought that perhaps Ethan did something from his end because he even says he can override Ben. Right. And I thought that, okay, he's given her back the manual override. And she then goes on to say that she still can't control it. So I don't know if she just didn't notice that light. <laughs> yeah. But obviously Ethan has to do some other things that override not just that manual override part, but also the virus protocol that I guess prevents them from coming back as well. So instead of Molly telling him that, hey, can you help me out here? <laughs> she actually uses that time to tell Ethan to take care of dad and tell him that I love him. Of course, he takes it much more literally and just says, let me connect you to dad. <laughs> you right. can tell him yourself. Right. And, you know, I mean, one of the criticisms I've, I've read out there has to do with kind of the, the lack of, and we've said um, chemistry, the lack of emotion, but I, re I don't think there was any lack of emotion in that scene. And, and to me, it, it was really moving. Like we all, I think, expected her, you know, Ethan, can you do something for me? And, and we're, we're thinking it's going to be something on the computer end to help her. But no, it's just like you said, it, it's basically saying goodbye. Right. And that was the first of two very touching moments where you could be forgiven for shedding a few tears while, while watching the screen there. 
but they find out that the only way they can uh, override the failsafe to avoid a viral attack is to use uh, some biometrics, which require a heat signature from a human hand. Right. And Ethan's going to have a little trouble simulating that unless he heats up those warmers. And of course, with the bomb inside you, that could be slightly dangerous. <laughs> right. And he knows that. But again, you talk about the emotional lines. I think this is my purpose. Oh, that was much more emotional for me, actually. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and I guess we ask ourselves, does he know that he's going to die? And, and I guess we do. He does know. Yeah, I think he does. And he's come a long way from just the conversations that he's had with his father in this one episode. I think the big one that we'll talk about later is you've got to take a leap of faith. And here at the end, Ethan has taken a leap of faith uh, to not only help his mother, but also reach out to the offspring as well. Right. And, and that was really an interesting dynamic between the two boys. Yeah. And just the fact that he's had such a difficult time coming to terms with the fact that does mom love him more? Yeah. And he has to reconcile the fact that she considers him her son and has some kind of empathy for this alien being that's quite destructive. And he's willing to, to buy into it. Right. But then we have to go back. This The machine is worried that his mother loves the other one more. And, and, and again, obviously... A lot of what this show has been about is what does it mean to be human? And, you know, I think it just really came out there. Um, and he, she, he tells her, the other boy's here now, and I know he's your son. I won't hurt him again. Yeah, like he did when he threw the ball through the glass. Right, although I'm not sure how much he hurt him. At that point. <laughs> well, he, but, cut his, he cut his hand or something. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, Ethan's able to free the escape pod, and, and we see Molly get away. Uh, the seraphim explosions begin. And, you know, I didn't need any special effects there. I thought the way they showed the seraphim exploding was fine. That's all I needed to see. Yeah, I liked it. That one and the, and the rocket taking off exactly. were really cool visual effects. Yeah. Um, well, the boys have another stare down. And, you know, like we said, Ethan seems to know instinctively he's going to explode, right? Raising his heat core. Was too much for the honey bomb. Yeah. And then he tells the offspring to run. That was so great. And this is the key moment for those people who are saying that they're uh, left too much hanging because you have to draw your conclusions from what Ethan did here. Telling the offspring to run, I think you should run now, <laughs> you know, very calmly. And he does. Yeah. And I guess you could argue, well, he couldn't have gotten way fast enough to avoid the, exp whatever. Well, especially since, and this is going to come into play when we talk about the very final scene, the, the five days later scene. And that is that what happened there? Because we didn't see the explosion. I'm sorry, but if you go back, he says run. He shouts run. The offspring barely gets moving and the scene cuts. No explosion and no departed offspring. So I think there's some questions there. Yeah, I know what you're saying, but I guess then I go back to the scene in the lab with Julie, Charlie, and John, and they're looking at his biometrics on the screen, and, and you see basically you know, everything going dark, and then the whole image just disappears, right? Yeah, that's true. And, and I personally believe that there was an explosion. I just think there might be more to it than what we saw. Right. See, I just like the way they show, you know, to show the explosion, well, that's obvious, like, duh. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, to do it the other way, I, I just really like the way they did it because... 
you watch Julie, Charlie, and John, and you know they're secretly horrified at what they're seeing, and none of them says a word. Except Julie just says, John. Right, right. (laughs) And then you see it just disappear. So, all right, well, obviously the other storyline... Ethan the bomb and the offspring. Yeah, let's rewind here a little yeah, bit. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, Ethan asks Molly why she feels differently about the offspring as her child when compared to him, and, and you know, John's trying to explain it as a difficulty of processing, and and I guess to a certain extent that's true, just as any human child has difficulty processing certain things that he or she might see. Well, especially since I think you can go across this whole season. This is why Ethan is the best part of this series. You could probably go back to each thing that Ethan does and ascribe it to one phrase that one of the humans said that he took either literally or interpreted in his own way. And if he doesn't get that input, then yeah, he has trouble processing it. But he's going to take a lot of things at face value. For for example, all the stuff that Odin told him because he used truth, true statements in his deception and stuff like that. So Ethan is really someone who has a completely different thought process than to what you and I have. Right. Now, thought processes that confused me, and and I guess one of the weaknesses that I feel in the episode really has to do with John and his reaction. Look, he knows that Odin planted the bomb. Right. Yep. Well, he he he's not certain about it. That's why he wants to open him up and find right. out. Right. Because he thinks maybe it's possible that just his programming was changed. Right. And but once he opens him up and he sees the sticky bomb, just his I don't know if it's fair to say cavalier attitude, but I do think it is that you've got to bring the bomb squad in. Yeah, they wanted to bring the bomb squad even before he opened up Ethan, but certainly afterwards you're going to have to take extreme measures. But he's afraid, and I think legitimately so, that they're going to do, the bomb squad is going to do a controlled explosion. They're not going to care about uh, Ethan as a person. They're going to think of it as property that's expendable in order to save lives. They're just going to put him in a big giant lead case and fire it off. Yeah. Well, I mean, a wise man once said, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, the needs of the one. And, well, yeah, that's true. And, and I don't, and I don't think John saw that film. Yeah, exactly. But uh, it, it's also the precursor to this idea was with the police officers on the island. Yeah, and I think that's true. The way that the police officers acted when his son was lost, you know, big deal. It's a robot. So I think I think it's justified the way he feels. But you you think that. He should have called in the bomb squad even so. Yeah, sure. I mean, you got to go past that. And even Julie, look, I mean, we've watched Julie really feel emotionally left out of Ethan's Mm -hmm. development. And, you know, he or she at least recognizes it, that I know he's your son and we love him too, but you're putting other people at risk. That's true. And if Julie says it, then you know there's got to be something to it. Because if anything, she's even more extreme than John sometimes. Right. And... Then, you know, John kind of implies that Julie introduced Odin into the equation. And and I thought it was really good when Charlie jumps to her defense. And and, Well, John's being a little bit unfair there, I think. Absolutely. absolutely. Taking it out on her. Yep. Yep. Now, the other thing is, though, you know, Ethan's attitude where he's afraid John's going to shut him down. 
And, you know, Charlie offers to show him Odin's video. Yeah, well, it's like, why didn't they show him Odin's video? I think that would be much more convincing than the little talking him down off the cliff edge that they ended up doing. <laughs> right, and then he starts uh, throwing out all the rhetoric that Odin had taught him. And like you said, though, most of it was true. Yeah. And then he pulls out the phone. And then it's like, don't do it. Even then, uh, John does kind of spell it out and says... I think if you if you use that phone, it's going to hurt a lot of people, including us. It's going to kill us. But it's like, why don't you just spell it out for him and say, that is a detonator. Right. Do not push that button. <laughs> right. But I think they're just trying to be as calm about it as they can. But I almost feel like they're making it worse. Yeah. No, I agree. And, which and, makes it surprising, the end result. And, you know, the first time I, I, I looked at it, I guess I thought it was John's talk of family and Ethan's human tendencies that's, that wins him over and Ethan hands him the phone, but I'm not so sure. I don't know. Well, I think that the key phrase, as I mentioned earlier, is you have to take a leap of faith. And I'm not sure how Ethan interpreted that at this time, but I do think he took that phrase to heart later on when he helped out other people. Uh, by sacrificing himself. So why does he give it to him? Is it logic or is it love? We don't know. Yeah. I mean, I I, I want to think it's love. Yeah, me too. I mean, he's suddenly trusting John's promise not to shut him down because probably his programming is weighing John's statements against Odin's and John's wins out. Right. And I don't remember if John has talked about whether or not Ethan's programmed with self-preservation tactics or not. I would think he is, but I'm not sure. Which begs the question, how can it also have self-sacrifice in the mix? Right. If it has self-preservation, it's like those things would be uh, conflicting with each other when it came time to uh, make the ultimate sacrifice. I guess unless we go back to Asimov's laws of robotics and, you know. Well, I think Ethan is not necessarily in that uh, ballpark. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, uh, Charlie shuts Ethan down, and we do finally get to see him wearing the doofus cap. (laughs) Yes, and they have an interface that they can use their clear iPads to turn them on and off, and and a little bit more sophisticated than just yanking his batteries out. (laughs) Right, and I guess I was fairly naive to think they were going to open them up. Oh, there's a bomb. Let's take it out. Yeah, it's true. I thought that, too. I was like, how... How are they going to call in the bomb squad to cut the red wire when there is no wire? But uh, good old Kern comes in for a final appearance, and he's one of many characters that we haven't seen in a while, and it's good to see him. I wish we had seen some of the other ones, but at least we got to see Kern. Yeah. Now, the other, I'm going to call it a flaw, and that the whole idea that they can't back up Ethan's program seems absurd. Well, I think it seems absurd to Kern. I mean, obviously, this honey bomb is permanently attached. It's highly unstable. There's nothing they can do. So why don't you call the bomb squad? Uh, isn't his program backed up somewhere? I mean, we could just put him in a new body, right? But their explanation here is that Ethan's growth, his unexplained growth, and we, by the way, still have no explanation for that. Right. But... It's outpaced their technology. So all the stuff that he's been going through, they haven't been able to figure out a storage method for some of the things he's been going through. And I'll buy that. 
I don't know. I feel like that's okay. Well, if they don't have a hard drive big enough. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just too many terabytes. I don't know. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, we, you know, after we get the update from Ryan Jackson, John explains to Ethan what the offspring is able to do. And, and after thinking about it, Ethan tells John, well, you know, I'm not human. He can't affect me. Let me do it. And Ryan Jackson's initially reluctant to let him do it. But I guess what I really liked about uh, Ryan Jackson's character is that he quickly makes that decision. You know, this is really our only shot. Let's do it. Yeah. And it's convenient that Ryan has done the evacuation at this point so he can actually come over to Yasumoto Tower and talk this through with John and Ethan. Otherwise, it would be completely unbelievable that he would leave ISEA in the middle of a crisis. Right. But uh, there was an earlier conversation, too, between John and Ethan when he's trying to figure out whether to involve Ethan in the first place. And Ethan is apologizing about getting mad at Molly. He's worried that Molly doesn't love him. And Ethan asks if his mother is going to die based on what's happening and them asking for his intervention. But it almost as though he starts out at this point in the in the episode fearing for his own mortality. And I'm wondering if that's the case because of course later on he he does sacrifice himself, but he looked really worried that he might die because they couldn't take the bomb out. Right. And do we know whether or not Ethan knows that he can't be backed up? Because, you know... Yeah, he does. He says it. Oh, that's right. He says it straight up that, I thought thought you couldn't do that. And he said, well, we have to leave the bomb in there until we can figure out a way. That's right. And that's what John thinks they're going to do until the whole plan comes out from from Ryan and, and... John realizes that this is at least is something that Ethan can do. In fact, Ethan is one that suggests it. He s- tells John that he's different and shouldn't be affected. You know, my brain's not like that. Yeah. So kudos to both John and Ryan for allowing a child, albeit a super genius Android child who you can download building schematics and access codes to. <laughs> right. But he's going to have to type in the codes by hand. Uh, oh, no, I'm no, not. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, you know, again, we, we've talked about some of the emotional scenes that that scene where John and Ethan are hugging just before he goes off on his scooter, which was a pretty cool. Touch. Why didn't they bring back the bike? Yeah, good point. <laughs> but but, you know, just watching how tightly Ethan seemed to be hugging John, I just was really touching. Yeah, it's, it is an intensity of emotion you wouldn't expect from an android. Right. Dad, trust me. Yeah, he seems to be eerily calm about it, actually, and and happy to be going off on his scooter, zooming down the hallways with the alarms going off. And pretty cool trick how he sees the offspring and just sort of locks the door and then goes on his merry way. Right. And, and this comes on the heels of Ethan having to trust his father to reboot him. Yeah. You know, after shutting him down. So, again, I really like that. Um well, we quickly have that showdown between Ethan and the offspring, and uh, I think we foolishly thought that the glass was going to keep them apart. Of course, it starts <laughs> shaking violently. Ethan runs away, and we now see that the offspring has this one superpower we didn't really think about. Yeah, you know what I would have liked to have seen from the fake Katie are the yellow eyes. Oh, yeah, that would have been cool. Because I think I feel like I link the power of the shaking glass because his eyes didn't start glowing until he started doing that. Right. And he does get into the actual control room itself when Ethan is giving Molly back manual control or at least helping with the uh, override. 
and it's just too late. He's already done it by the time he breaks through that glass. Mm. All right. Well, you know, one of the touches that I really, really liked was at the end of the episode, we see on the screen five days later. Yeah. And we see at first Sam telling Molly that there's no evidence that the offspring died in the explosion. He might still be out there. Right. Uh, Ethan did tell him to run. And Molly at least is telling herself that she knows instinctively that he's still alive. So, Well, we're to believe, I guess, that there's a connection there. Right. Mo- Molly just can feel that he's out there somewhere. Right. I guess. See, I'm still not buying <laughs> it, uh, uh, as you can tell. Yeah, it's just that we've been told it multiple times, so I think we're meant to buy into it. I see why why you are reluctant to go with Molly doing that, because she's kind of deluding herself. But her being the protagonist of the show, I mean, she's had a lot of flaws, don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm inclined to to believe her on that and wonder where that bond comes from and how it, how is it established and is it real? And is it felt from the other side, the offspring? Yeah. Now, I'm not usually big on voiceovers, but I thought the voiceover here was pretty good. Uh, you know, she's in John's home lab, uh, and she's looking around, and she's explaining that John's intention to create a human machine became so much more, and whether by divine creation or cosmic accident, we made it here and we exist. So is she implying that the artificial intelligence is the next step? Uh, hmm, that's a good question because of course the end result seems to imply that Ethan is going to become perhaps a benevolent overlord. <laughs> I have no idea, but if he's the next step, then I think he took a really big first step here at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Then we, sh- we flash over to the Yasumoto towers lab and Charlie and Julie are shutting down the monitors and I'm not sure why. They waited five days to shut them all down, but, uh, but that's okay. All right. And, you know, staring wistfully at faces. I assumed these were faces to be used in the next physical body for Ethan as he oh, gets yeah. older, I guess. Possibly. Yeah. And what if the maybe five days later is, you know, Yasumoto's dead, we assume, because he only had eight days left. Right. And so five days would be at least part of that and, and some time in space as well. So maybe they've run out of funding and this is the end of the lab, not just the screens that they're shutting down. Right. No, that could be. Suddenly, Ethan's monitor comes alive and we hear Ethan's voice ask, Mom? Yeah, and then she goes in to tell John, but she doesn't have to do that because guess what? The same image is on every last monitor in the house, every last picture, every last mirror, anything that's a interactive surface. Right. And yeah, I mean, I think that's so clear. We don't even need to talk about what that means. <laughs> All, <laughs> yeah, right. We'll just, All right. Just kidding. We'll, we'll let the podcast be just like the show. Draw your own conclusions. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, obviously he doesn't have a corporeal body at this point, at least that we know of, but has he been saved, right? I mean, we were worried about having him backed up, but clearly somebody backed him up. Yeah, that's where the question becomes, how did this happen and why? And the episode ended, right? On Wednesday, I'm sitting there doing the live tweet. Suddenly, I'm thinking, how do I feel about this? And I think I had that moment that a lot of people had where I'm like, is that enough? 
But then I had some light bulbs go on. And this is where the genius of this ending comes into play because the audience starts drawing their own conclusions. And mine, and you can take this or leave it, is that the interaction between the offspring and Ethan was something where Ethan was being generous to the offspring and the offspring realized it. He was giving him a chance to run, showing him mercy. And in return for that, the architect of eternal life, and those are Yasumoto's words, gave Ethan a form of android afterlife. Yeah. So do you think I'm right or do you have a completely no, different No, no, absolutely <laughs> no. I think that I, I, I absolutely think you're right. And that scene there at the end, I guess the, the actual final scene where we see the offspring walking alone at night, he's on a bridge, right? Yeah, just right. walking along and assuming that this is also five days later. Right. And this couple stops, asks if they can help. I was a little surprised he just got in their car. Yeah. I mean, no, glow, no glowing eyes or anything. Right. And, you know, what, and, and then the car just drives away. Well, because, you know, they could have gone for that cheap trick. They could have gone for the look at the camera, eyes glow, freeze frame and credits. Right, right. <laughs> but they didn't go for that because they, they want us to think, okay, is he good or is he bad? Right. And I think if we accept your theory, which I, I definitely agree with, then he at least did a good thing. Whether or not he's actually good, we don't know. And that's obviously one of the questions we have to address about the motives of the aliens. Well, especially since they might be different. The offspring might be different. I think he showed some trepidation with Molly last week about their coming, and he seemed like he didn't necessarily want to go along with it. But he had no choice but to go along with it, which is why he helped them out in trying to stop Molly in this episode. So... What are the motives of this alien spores? Are they just trying to propagate? Are they trying to survive? Are we talking about a potential extinction for them that can only be saved by them coming to Earth uh, to feed, as it were? Right. That's the only thing I can think. Right. And do we really have evidence that they are hostile? Or are their actions merely survival tactics? But that also begs the question, what have they been doing before now right. to sustain themselves? Right. Were they living on the yellow goo the same way Yasumoto did in the mines, perhaps? Yeah. And now they actually have a real meal? <laughs> right, right. Now, you had a question about Molly, right? Yeah. Well, I was wondering why she was able to plant all those charges for Plan C without any interference from Katie. Uh, it, it was seemed to imply that she was able to power through the illusions and she's learned to resist it. And that's what she tells Ben. The reason I'm taking Sean home with me is, listen, I was able to resist it. So maybe he can too. I was infected with, with the spores, but that can't be a reason for not letting us go back to earth. Right. And so has she really developed a method for resisting the spores or like, and you know, she's had enough experience now. Maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe she has developed some sort of mental fortitude or just a, a trick of the mind to realize that it's not real and overcome it. Right. I think maybe, maybe that is what she did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about how the offspring survived the explosion because even though he ran, he 
couldn't have run very far. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, is the offspring responsible for Ethan's consciousness surviving? I, I agree with you. I think I think definitely is. Well, except see now we it's easy for us to say that because all along we've been saying that the offspring or one of the theories was that the offspring was responsible for Ethan's accelerated pace of learning as well. And I don't know that that turned out to be the case. Right. I, I, I'm not sure there's any evidence for that. I think just, you know, John thought he had it under control and he didn't. And I think Ethan stumbled across the secret to, you know, life on his own. His programming was taking on a life of its own in that sense. Right. Now, you know, in that ending scene with Molly and Sam, uh, Sam says that, you know, we, we don't, see any evidence that he didn't survive the explosion uh, but what about ethan right right did they pull some scraps of plastic out yeah <laughs> of the wreckage right yeah that's 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 a big question and i think that they probably did find pieces of ethan but how did his programming make that transition it's strange because we talk about how the offspring was not able to affect Ethan and that's why they sent him into the ISEA. So the idea that the offspring could then affect an Android brain enough to save it and put it everywhere kind of denies the fact that it wasn't able to, to control it in a bad way. So why would it be able to control it in a good way? Right. But that's still what I'm willing to believe because I, I want to believe the best of this ending. (laughs) So, well, why don't we leave it there? Yeah, and I guess we don't have to do predictions this week, right? No. Oh. So, so so we won't do that. We'll I, just skip. What's that? I predict there will not be a season two. <laughs> That's the prediction? Yes. All right. Well, let's. we actually have a lot of listener feedback anyway, so we want to give them a chance to fit themselves in here as well. So let's move into our Dark Matter Chatter segment. And we'll start with a new... Uh, feedbacker as whatever you want to call it stick legs 74 he uh, he or she says just found your show today loved it and he's got a couple different points first four episodes ago dr mason called it when he told molly they didn't have to look for aliens as they had already been to earth he studied microfossils and meteorites that had biomarkers of terrestrial bacteria so is the fungus outside the spaceship related to dr mason's find if the fungus remains outside the ship, it should burn up once it re-enters the atmosphere. That's what I was thinking too, but I guess the idea was that once the spores hit the Earth's atmosphere, they disperse and go everywhere, right? Well, that's the impression I got. Yeah, so we'll have to go go with that particular thing. I, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief there. Sticklegs, second point. The offspring could get inside the head and heart of anyone he wanted to manipulate, and he is aware of their disappointments in life. How did he learn he could use this lure of seeing a dead loved one as a tool? Yeah, it's like, what previous experience did they have in this? Right, and why pick a dead loved one? I mean, I guess the idea that that we long for what we don't have anymore, but... Something was in the brain that the aliens were specifically honing in on. In fact, that's what he goes on to say. Maybe the aliens are hungry for human emotion, vicariously feeding off of human memories, a dull species without blood, voyeurs who yearn for their own life experiences. I think that's really well said. The third point, an energy field appeared when Molly was impregnated with the offspring. Why would a powerful, mysterious energy field need a spaceship to get to Earth? 
especially if it was the source of the gooey gold elixir of immortality. And that goes back to what I said earlier, Dave. We have to stop thinking of it as energy now because now it's been shown to be fungus spores. (laughs) And fourth, the offspring tells Molly they had to survive. Did he mean he and Molly or did he mean his species? The offspring seemed very bewildered by his own blood. As a little boy, as Marcus and her father, the the offspring said they had to leave so that he could protect her. Where could he possibly on this doomed green earth want to take Molly to protect her? And I think uh, that is a question that's still left. Uh, The offspring seemed to be protective, but I think he must have just felt like he had no choice but to go with the majority here at the end, right? Yeah. And next, maybe the meteorite was a crashed scouting vessel to lure humans into space. Yasumoto said he wasn't alone in the hole for that month. Did he consider the golden goo a living thing? Or was there an alien without blood and body in the hole with him? That would be cool. Well, yeah, and that was a question that I had at the time as well when when he said that about being alone. Yeah, because the goo is not really perceived to be part of the sentience of the alien. But uh, Sticklegs did love the scene where Ethan didn't want to wear the doofus hat. I'm not wearing that. Early in the series, Ethan voiced his concern about the threat of his family becoming extinct after seeing a display of an extinct species at a museum. Ethan easily saw the correlation between his father's trance, the odd circles on his neck, and the manipulating offspring standing outside and tried to get rid of that threat. But Ethan didn't recognize the manipulating Odin as a threat. And that's a good point there, Sticklegs, except... Like I said, I think because Odin used statements that had a seed of truth, that's why he was deceived. Right. And then uh, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit that, you know, I'd forgotten all about that statement about the extinct species, you know, when they were on that field trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Some good stuff from Stickleg74 for sure. We do have another one from a frequent contributor, Alex from the UK who says, when I watched the pilot episode, just like everyone else, I was intrigued from the start. The idea of Molly coming back from a solo mission pregnant was mind-blowing. At the end of the season, I have to say that although I'm not 100% pleased with the ending, I am extremely satisfied. Three points I loved. One, Ethan claiming that he found his purpose. During the climax to the season, that was such a heartwarming line after all the confusion he was subjected to. Uh, again, I think that was my favorite scene in the, in the episode. Yeah, my, definitely my favorite one. Now, second, he says, the atmosphere on the Seraphim when Molly docked felt so alien. The dark corridors made it feel like a ghost ship. Oh, I loved, and this, I think is, this goes to the director, I have to say. Molly docking and then just showing like, the happy birthday written in Russian on a, on a drawing attached to the controls and just showing different things around the ship dead and not moving. Yeah, I agree. Definitely, Alex. Yep. Uh, third, the face-to-face meeting of Ethan and the offspring. The offspring went completely creepy in this episode and seeing Ethan brave up to him was incredible. However, there were a few things I didn't like. Whatever happened to Yasumoto, Femidad, and Odin? Um, you know, again, you explained Yasumoto that we assume his time ran out. He only had a few days. Uh, Femi Dodd, uh, minor character, minor character. Odin. Look, I I mean, ISEA is a huge organization. I got to believe somebody called the authorities and, (laughs) and, and somebody took care of Odin. Yeah. This isn't the government. This is a company. Right. I didn't need to see that. 
uh, I'm, I'm just going to assume that they have him in custody somewhere. It, it does seem a little odd that he didn't follow up on his plan, but maybe he's off somewhere going, realizing, eh, didn't work. On to plan C. <laughs> maybe he has a suitcase that says uh, plan C. <laughs> maybe. Now, he says, unless the series is renewed, we won't get any resolution to them. Also, whatever happened to Sam and Sean Glass after the Seraphim came back to Earth? It's just the little things that niggle at me. Ethan's final physical moments were completely Torchwood children of Earth. <laughs> I did love how Ethan was actually saved by transcending after his death. That was incredible to watch after Molly's monologue about Ethan's impact on her life as well as everybody else's. Was his transcendence the offspring's doing, perhaps? Or was it the result of his advanced programming, his secret part? Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, it could have been his own doing. It's the same thing I just said about we ascribed the offspring's influence to his advanced programming, so it might not even be the offspring that saved him. It might be himself that saved him. Yeah. In any case, even if Extant doesn't get renewed, it was a great story. It took all the typical sci-fi tropes and crafted them into something new, which I loved. Well said. <laughs> all the separate storylines might not have been resolved, but I'm okay with that. Overall, I give this episode 8 out of 10 honey bombs. <laughs> it certainly went out with a bang. Ha ha ha, I yeah. get what you did. <laughs> Props to Mickey Fisher for creating an original and thought-provoking story out of ideas we thought repetitive and old in the genre field. Well done. And well done, Mike and Dave, for putting on a great show every week, too. Well, we Yay. appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> what will I listen to on my morning commute to work now? Wait, did someone say Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? We most certainly did. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yes, we hope we uh, get some people to follow us from here to there. And here's someone who followed us from Continuum to here, Gezus. He says, to be honest, I did not like the season finale of Extent all that much. It was good overall, but it was rushed, and there was so much unrealized potential. Speaking of cool, what a slick new costume Molly got. The air hose from her helmet looked like it didn't go anywhere, which is odd, but whatever. The shuttle launch and Seraphim exploding looked good. The visual effects and props in this show did not disappoint. But everything else was uneven. As a limited series, I was hoping for a definitive season-slash-series closer, but it felt rushed. It's like the creators of the show remembered that it is the last episode only when it was time to make it. Then they had to make a checklist of what they had to address and tried to stick in as many items from that list as they could. Overall, the series was good. It took science fiction stories and tropes we already saw and did something interesting and unexpected with them. That's practically the same statement that Alex made. That's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> Hoping to see Extant continuing in any form, and it does not have to be a 13-episode season, here are some of my nitpicks of this episode. First off, Ben changed. Ben was able to keep up with humans in conversation and respond to jokes, but now he ignores jokes and is continuously throwing probabilities. That's true. Ben was a jokester earlier on when, when they were on the Seraphim together just by themselves. Yeah. But Gezis says, I feel that the writers were trying to make Ben less likable and more machine to highlight the difference between it and Ethan. Absolutely. I agree, Gezis. In the end, Ben decides to block Molly's escape from Seraphim based on logic while Ethan lets her leave because of emotion or something like it. Then there is all the lost potential with Katie and Sean. And here I agree with you, Gezis. It's definitely sad that we didn't get to see more of that relationship because it was really spot on. Maybe conflict between human and alien sides of Katie was too much to hope for, but she could at least be more of a threat. The offspring is even more menacing than a fully developed Katie. 
Finally, there's all the missing characters like Odin, Sparks, or Yasumoto. In my opinion, Odin should have appeared in this episode or at least have been mentioned like that the authorities are looking for him. And that's, I think, the only one I agree with. I would have liked to have just a smidgen of Odin. Right. But, now, now, Sparks is in custody already, right? Yeah, we're done with him. Yeah. And I'm okay with Yasumoto dying as well. Yeah. So, All right. Well, we also heard from David who said, I've been watching Extant and I think the show has some promise, but still find it to be a little dull. I've never been a big fan of Halle Berry and her character is starting to turn me off with her blind devotion to the baby. Now, creepy kid. And, and, and that's been kind of my feeling. Uh, I did like the glowing eyes, though. Yes, we all did. Uh, <laughs> I do like the subplot about the emotional connections with humanics versus real children and the possible extinction of the human race when this new species spreads. This show seems to have some similarities to other shows. The first is with Helix, where the CDC team tries to stop a virus from wiping out most of the world's population. The actor Hiroyuki Sonata also plays a very similar role on Helix as he does on Extant. And there's even a subplot that Hataki Sonata is older than he appears to be. The two characters could almost be interchangeable. That's kind of fun. Yeah. Then there are many references to Terminator and the robot uprising that may occur among the humanics or the ape rebellion from Planet of the Apes, if you prefer. <laughs> I really want to see this go in the direction of an alien virus taking over the world only to be stopped by an army of humanics who would be immune. Oh, cool. Yeah. This year seems to have a lot of shows about plagues, either alien, vampire, or mutated virus. Do they know something we don't? <laughs> well, and not to mention the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, it's like, I think we're on a theme here. I think some uh, historians will have to look back on this era and see how it tied into the current events of, of our day. But lastly, uh, we have to save Christopher's for last because he's got some real great statements to end on. And of course, he also starts off with some praise, which never hurts. <laughs> He says, well, we arrived at the finish of Extant Season 1. It's my sincere hope we see more, as there is much more to this story. First, I'd like to take a moment to thank you both for your hard work and dedication to this podcast. As a sci-fi fan, I have loved your articulate and thoughtful analysis each week. The two of you make an outstanding podcast team, and our Extant journey has been so much more fun with your input each week. Second, I'd like to thank Mickey Fisher and the entire Extant team of writers, cast and crew for their ingenuity, creativity, and drive to bring something special to life for us to experience. Extant has been a truly thought-provoking and unique sci-fi ride, and I feel privileged to have made this journey with everyone. Finally, my thoughts on the finale itself. The ending of this journey was, for me, a breathtaking, emotional, and satisfying conclusion. Questions were answered, and yet many remain. Dave mentioned that as sci-fi fans, we're okay with open endings. I'd have to completely agree. Classic sci-fi doesn't respond to every question with an answer only from the perspective of the creator. Instead, great sci-fi is more accurately recognized by the deep questions it forces us to ask of ourselves. In this regard, Extant was exceptional. It forced us to think about what it means to exist, to be loved, to be included in a family, and to find purpose in life. As Molly so eloquently stated from the words of Mickey at the end, no one could explain how it happened. John set out to create a more human machine, but in the end, what he created was much more than that. In those final moments, Ethan taught us something about what it means to be human, how our connection to each other and our ability to love and sacrifice transcends our physical forms. I've never been a big believer in miracles, but there is one I've come to embrace. 
something time and space have revealed to me over and over again. Whether by divine creation or by cosmic accident, we made it here. We exist. And that's a gift, rare and beautiful. Ethan chose to sacrifice himself to save his family and all those that he loved. We may never know the motives of the sentient race that seemed determined to consume us, but I like to think that Ethan recognized in his half-sibling qualities that are redeemable and worthy of life, curiosity and existence. He could have remained silent, but yet told his brother to run. And whether by divine creation, conscious effort in his connection to ISEA's systems, or by simple cosmic accident, in that moment, Ethan not only survived to continue his existence, but he fittingly honored the episode's title and ascended to something more than just himself. Were I Molly, John, Julie, and Charlie, I'd sleep a little better at night knowing Ethan and his humble spirit might be watching over me with the compassion and love he learned from being a part of their extended family. That's also a gift, rare and beautiful. You know, I think that is just so well said. I mean, all I can say is that I am continually stunned by the eloquence of our listeners. Yeah, uh, Christopher just puts it so well, even uses some of the same words that Molly did in his analysis as well. Well done. Yep. Hmm. But what a way to end. Well, well, you know, and, and as we consider whether or not there will ever be a season two, one of the things I was thinking about, can we have an extant season two without Molly and without John? And, and with I think you asked me this question at work and I th- answered... I think we can. Yeah, I think we can also, and it might be something 10 years later, yeah, five years, you know, whatever. And I think to a certain extent, and I've read other showrunners say this, that for certain shows, you don't want an actor that everybody knows. You don't want an actor that has this track record where people make presumptions about him or her. And for me, I think that was part of the issue here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Halle Berry did a great job and did some really emotional performances. But yeah, the perception of Halle Berry, even that was mentioned in one of our listener feedbacks there, may have hurt her and hurt the show. But overall, I think she did a great job. But there was obviously some chemistry issues that went beyond characterization. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, I I think Ethan was perhaps the... He stole the show. He stole the show. Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. And we finally learned how to pronounce extant. I think I said it like seven times in that last segment there. (laughs) But that's it for this season of the Dark Matter Extant podcast. Keep up with show news and find out if there's going to be a season two by following us on Twitter at Dark Matter GSM. And if you'll be watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in a couple of days, go ahead and follow us at S.H.I.E.L.D. underscore GSM, the Twitter account for The Sandbox, our S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast. And Mike and I will be signing off of the Dark Matter Extant podcast until next season, if there is one. But in the meantime, head on over to goldenspiralmedia.com slash podcast to check out the other genre podcasts our network is offering, including Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Gotham, Arrow, The Flash, and even some shows not based on comic book characters. (laughs) Yeah, there's plenty for everyone. Those exist? (laughs) Yep, it's on to the comic book field, guys. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Dark Matter, Please consider rating and reviewing us in iTunes. We got such a great one from Turkish Leonard this week that was entitled Podcast Better Than Show. (laughs) But with that, we'll talk to you in the sandbox.